Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 239 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. Nick Whitaker, our Director of Research and Trading, is back on the show, filling in for Matt while he's out on a business trip. So, Nick, welcome back. Good to be here. As always, we will review uh, the month-to-date and year-to-date performance of the major market indices that we track, and this data is from YCharts, and as of uh, February 14th, 2024, S&P 500 index is up 3.2% for the month and up 4.8% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 0.7% for the month of February and up 1.9% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 4.6% for the month, up 5.6% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index up 3.2% for the month, down 0.8% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF up 1% for the month and still down 0.7% for the year. Three-month treasury rate sitting at 5.43%, the two-year treasury rate at 4.56%, and the 10-year treasury rate at 4.27%. Uh, so yields have uh, come up a little bit over the past couple of weeks, Nick. Um, and, you know, due to primarily the the big headline or, or current event from, you know, this past week was uh, January CPI or consumer inflation numbers coming in stronger than expected, uh, with the biggest contributor being uh, shelter or rent, uh, as we have talked about in the past, since that is a lagging uh, data point. Uh, So CPI came in at 3.1% versus expectations of 2.9%. And then core CPI came in at 3.9% versus a consensus estimate of 3.7%. Um, So the data was viewed as a basis for the Fed to push out the timing of the first rate cut, uh, which promoted heavy selling pressure on Tuesday in the markets. However, uh, markets did bounce back yesterday, uh, and it looked like markets, uh, the futures were up this morning before the market opened. Um, Fed funds futures market, which had been eyeing uh, the May, the month of May, excuse me, uh, for the first rate cut, now thinks it will be happening at the June meeting. Uh, and when the year began, it's interesting to note that the market had uh, placed its bets that the first rate cut was going to be in March. Um, so that has continued uh, to get pushed back. Um, not surprising. January tends to be kind of a weird year, or excuse me, a weird month for data anyways. Things come in and tend to run a little hotter uh, than expected just in any given January. Um, So we weren't necessarily surprised by this, did cause uh, selling on on Tuesday. Um, But like I said, markets made up not all of what they lost on Tuesday, but a lot of it on on Wednesday. So um, just a short term term pullback there. Uh, Moving on to tweets. 
articles and research from this week, Nick. The first thing that I had uh, is a blog post from David Keller on StockCharts.com titled, Beware the Hindenburg Omen. And I'm not sure if you've ever uh, heard of this, Nick, but uh, you know what the Hindenburg Omen essentially is, it, is that it looks for conditions that are very common at major market tops. And you know, does a valid signal guarantee a major market top? Of course not. But going back through market history, very few peaks have occurred without the Hindenburg Omen dropping a bearish signal just beforehand. So David kind of outlines what needs to happen to get one of these bearish signals. And he says, first, we need to confirm that the market is in an established uptrend, as this is an indicator designed to identify market tops. So we take a chart of the NYSE composite index and look to make sure that the 50-day rate of change is positive, meaning the market is higher than it was 10 weeks ago. At major market tops, there were not only plenty of stocks making new 52-week highs, but also a bunch of stocks making 52-week lows. This implied investor indecision as stocks were both breaking out and breaking down around the same time. Finally, we're looking for a bearish rotation and market breadth, suggesting that the strength that pushed the benchmarks higher in the bullish phase are now starting to dissipate. Um, so, uh, you know, Nick, I've been kind of, you know, hearing several people calling for a market top based on this one indicator. However, if you look at the chart that Jenna's going to throw up on the screen right now, there have been several instances in the past 10 years where we have gotten a Hindenburg Omen signal and the market has continued higher. So I don't necessarily believe it does investors any good to rely on this indicator for market tops. It should be used as more of a component to build a bigger thesis on the direction of the market. Um, so what you'll see in this chart is that the green uh, horizontal lines uh, represent Hindenburg omen sing signals that we got where the market just continued higher. The red vertical lines uh, mark Hindenburg omens where the market did sell off, whether it was you know short term or a longer term thesis. So you can see, you know, the two most recent large sell offs in March of 2020 and uh you know late 2021 before the horrible market in 2022 we did get these bearish signals um but as you can also easily see on this chart we've gotten these signals before and the market continued moving higher so thought that this was probably going to be something that was going to get circulated in uh the financial news media and wanted to get ahead of it um again i'm not saying that this indicator is useless uh you know, it could be, you know, something to make our ears perk up and, and be uh, more vigilant, I guess, going forward over the next couple of weeks, but doesn't mean imminent market crashes is incoming. Yeah, absolutely. And just looking at the chart a little closer, um, you could see even when, and not all the time, but there are there were some pullbacks, some small short-term pullbacks on a lot of those green lines. Yeah. Not all of them. Uh, but but some of them um, and and that wouldn't surprise me i don't think that would surprise surprise anyone here you matt uh, if we have a little bit of a pullback uh, that's healthy we we expect to see that at some point point. Um, and you know 
the CPI could have been kind of the trigger for that this week. Um, you know, you see the strong strong market reaction, uh, but then you know yesterday uh, we we come back and 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 kind of reverse some of those losses. So we'll see, uh, you know, uh, what happens. Um, but it, best to not put all all of your eggs in, in one uh, in any indicator when it comes to the financial markets, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just how we like to diversify across, you know, several different areas of the market. Uh, we want to do the same with, with you know, what we're paying attention to in terms of, of indicators because there's not, uh, there's not a holy grail, uh, you know, as much as most people would like to think. You know, when I was younger, I was certainly one of those people chasing, like, I'm going to find the one indicator that I can rely on year in and year out to tell me when to buy and when to sell. And let me tell you, you've spent hundreds yeah. of hours probably on it. It does not. It does not exist. Yeah. So um, next thing I had was uh, a blog post written by Jason Zweig at the Wall Street Journal, and this was back on January 26th titled what I learned when I stopped watching the market. So Jason says, I'm back at my regular post at the Wall Street Journal after being away on book leave. That long hiatus disengaged me from the daily hubbub of markets so I could frame investing ideas in a longer historical and broader psychological perspective. When my last regular column ran on May 26, the S&P 500 was already up 10.3% in 2023 right in line with long-term average annual returns of U.S. stocks. Let's just call it a year right here, I recall muttering to myself. From that day to this week, I tuned out the daily noise of fluctuations in stocks, bonds, commodities, and economic indicators. What's that, you say? The S&P sank more than 10% and the NASDAQ fell more than 12% between July and October? Then, in three wild weeks, they roared right back out of their declines. I never noticed. When you don't watch the market every day, you can finally see with unquestionable clarity that what you would have expected to happen didn't. The unexpected did. Have you told me war would break out in the Middle East in October and last for months? I would have been sad but unsurprised. Had you added that crude oil, after a fleeting surge, finished 2023 at a lower price than the day I left, I would have been amazed. In May, I already wondered whether NVIDIA, then up 167% in 2023, had risen too far, too fast. The computer graphics giant at the forefront of the AI boom has since gained another 58%. I'm not saying that the news doesn't matter. I am saying that reacting to the news or even feeling you're supposed to can poison your portfolio and sour your life. If you're tempted to make drastic changes to your portfolio in response to the headlines, then you could benefit from simulating my market sabbatical. Um, and this is something, Nick, that we talk about, you know, several times throughout each year, right? Is not letting the day-to-day -day noise influence your decisions when it comes to making changes in your portfolio. Um, but I think it just, you know, it goes back to, you know, what we've mentioned here before. It was probably a lot easier on the mind, at least, to invest, you know, when all this technology wasn't around. And now with social media and being able to trade stocks, bonds, commodities at the tip of your fingers on your iPhone, um, 
it makes it a lot more challenging to overcome the psychological desire to want to act when something in the world goes wrong. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that this is a really good practice, uh, for a lot of people that more people should take advantage of that Jason went through. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, like Jason, I mean, obviously you could have done this in 2022 and been like, Oh my God, you know, it was a horrible year. Um, but just because it was a horrible year doesn't mean that you could, you, you should be making changes or making changes to your plan. Um, so it's a really good practice because, you know, it is one of those things that, you know, it's so easy to access that it's, you know, it, it really drives that, uh, that dopamine hit either, you know, it puts you in a really, really good mood when you look at your accounts and the, and the market's up or it puts you in a bad mood when the market's down over a couple week period. And, I don't necessarily think that's the healthiest for uh, the general population, but um, thought that this was a good practice. And, you know, if I weren't, I would like to think if I weren't in this industry and this wasn't my my day job that I would I would try to implement something similar. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is this is one of the biggest um, psychological pieces of wealth management of the wealth management industry is helping our our clients understand this and and kind of bridge that gap and we have to be in it every day we that that's our job and but we also understand this this side of it we understand the long game we understand volatility and and all the all the details around the financial markets um this this is actually one of the challenges that i've noticed switching from a, a more institutional role to to wealth management this this piece here is probably one of the biggest takeaways that I've I've had and uh, over the past few years working in the wealth management industry is um, I don't want to say the the gap in knowledge because that's not necessarily the case it's not necessarily a gap in knowledge with 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 clients all the times but, but sometimes it is um, heightened uh, the heightened emotions around the volatility. And for and and for good reason and understandable, um, and you know, we we do our best to you know not diminish anyone's emotions around the markets and and their retirement portfolios, et cetera. Um, but that is a challenge, um, and you know getting people to you know take the deep breath and and trust in the long long plan. I think that's that's the wealth management industry in in a nutshell. That's that's one of the big challenges that we have to work with. I think. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, I, I would argue it's, you know, it's more than half of our job is, is, you know, kind of acting in that psychologist role for, for yeah. people, right. Because this, this yeah. stuff can, can be very, very emotional. But, yeah. um, last thing I had was just a quick one, a uh, quick blog post from the grindstone intelligence blog by Austin Harrison on February 7th titled almost time for a tech breather question mark. He says, tech is unstoppable. Just how unstoppable? Over the past five years, technology has risen more than two times the return of the S&P 500 index. Tech's dominance has been so extreme that every other sector has lagged the benchmark. 10 out of 11 sectors are below average. John, I'll throw this chart up uh, in the show notes and on the YouTube page, but what's this going to show is the S&P 500 performance by sector going back the past five years. And as you can see, the blue line is the tech sector, the black line is the S&P 500, 
and every other sector is kind of grayed out uh, in the background. But you can see tech is the only sector that has outperformed the S&P 500 over the past five years and just goes to show you how dominant uh, tech has been. And the reason I bring this up is that, you know, this chart is, uh, you know, kind of the reason why we aren't necessarily an advocate for modern portfolio theory, which thinks that investors should have an allocation to all areas and sectors of the market. Um, you know, in my opinion, investors should want to own the strongest industries, sectors, and stocks. And whether that's with individual stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, doesn't matter or make a difference. But it has, you know, it hasn't made sense to own utilities or consumer staples over the past five years. It just hasn't. And this this chart shows it. So um, just something that I, I thought was interesting. And again, just because tech has been this dominant over the last five years doesn't mean it can't be this dominant over the next five years. Um, so uh, yeah, interesting absolutely. stuff from the tech sector. Yeah, I think it's an amazing chart. And it's it's an amazing chart for um, you know someone who isn't in it every day, uh, you know, for listeners who aren't looking at these types of charts every day, I think this is um, an, an excellent depiction of what has been going on in the market over the last you know, five years and, and potentially even longer. Um, it, the data gets a little muddled because of the uh, the gigs change with consumer services uh, um, or, or, excuse me, communication services breaking out um, a couple of years ago. More than a couple of years ago now. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. But, uh, you know, kind of jumping on what you said about the modern portfolio theory, and if you even take that out further, you know, the US, uh, the SP 500, we're pr predominantly looking at, you know, domestic stocks there. Um, and if you take out modern portfolio theory and you, you break it out to international markets, uh, international developed um, emerging markets, and you build a portfolio based on that with exposure to all of these gray lines that you're talking about, it, it can diminish uh, return potential even more over the past five years, 10, 15. Um, and, you know, that's part of that is uh, that idea of, of diversification and and trying to kind of steady the line over time, um, which can decrease volatility of the portfolio overall. Yes, absolutely, it does decrease volatility. Uh, however, it can absolutely eat into your overall gains if that is you know the the desire, as this chart very well illustrates. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, with that being said, Nick, I will turn it over to you. Yeah, uh, the, the first thing I have is just a little follow-up on inflation detail. Um, this is uh, a chart from Bloomberg um, with data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Keep in mind that this chart was actually released the day before the inflation numbers were printed. Um, it's a good chart. I just wanted to show it anyway. The, the, uh, the article I was reading... Uh, said the following, uh, the Fed's Michelle Bowman said there is no need for rate cuts soon as the benchmark is a good place to keep pressure on prices. Thomas Barkin echoed her comments, warning businesses may be slow to give up pricing power, but disinflation may not be enough for some officials who also want sl the slowing to broaden more meaningfully to houses and services. We talked about it earlier that the, the inflation numbers came in a little hot, primarily on, on shelter costs being up a little bit. 
And this this doesn't surprise me to see this kind of commentary come out of the Fed. Um, when you think about the core inflation numbers being, uh, you know, still a little high relative to, you know, the, the overall target is 2%, but that's going to take in, into consideration um, higher fluctuation pieces of CPI, such as energy and food. But when the core inflation is this high um, and, and then kind of jumps up a little bit, the market reaction doesn't surprise me, uh, given the environment we're in. And it doesn't surprise me to see Fed officials say, you know what, we want to see core inflation come down a little bit. We want that to, to really eat away. Um, we want we want to help pressure that. Um, you can see in this chart here, um, you know, the came in even higher than, than forecasted. Um, I, I think that's going to be a little bit of a narrative and that's I, I this is a personal opinion, but I think that is a, a big piece of what can keep this Fed really. I don't want to say foot on the pedal because they're not accelerating, but can just keep them in. Hey, let's just wait and see mode. Um, I think they want to see the overall number move down to two. Yes. Um, but I think they're they have a keen eye on on some of the uh, the, the core ba basket items, so to speak. Yeah, nah, couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. You have anything uh, you want to add to that? I do not. Excellent. Uh, the second thing I had was checking in on commercial real estate. There's a lot going on in the market about this, um, and you'll be able to read a plethora of of different items. So. This is a kind of a hodgepodge of information that I pulled across a few different articles across the week um, uh, from Bloomberg. Uh, I'll, I'll read a couple uh, a couple quotes here. Um, we're coming up against a maturity wall. So there are a lot of commercial property loans coming due, nearly 20% of outstanding debt on US commercial and multifamily real estate. 929 billion will mature this year, requiring refinancing or property sales. That's far higher than an earlier estimate by Mortgage Bankers Association, a surge attributed to loan extensions and other delays. About 4.7 trillion of debt from all sources is backed by US commercial real estate, ratcheting up concerns among regulators because building values are sliding. Increasing defaults and write downs have hit lenders like NYCB, as well as KKR's Commercial Mortgage Real Estate Investment Trust um, and holders of commercial mortgage-backed securities. Um, a lot of this gets down to some of these changes, the, these, these changes that we've seen um, from, from COVID with office demand um, and kind of really working its way through, through society and the system. Uh, this next piece I, I grabbed from a different article that talked about weak demand for office space, which is squelching appetite for new developments as remote work and high interest rates find ground in major U.S. cities. Among 12 business centers, the decline is particularly steep in Chicago, where nine construction cranes were operating as of August compared with 29 pre-pandemic. Only Manhattan did worse. And there's a little chart that we'll, we'll show up uh, that we'll throw up for, for listeners. Um, there's there's going to be continued news about this. You know, you have Evercore or, or excuse me, Evergrande over in China. Um, you've had multiple banks in Europe talking about their commercial uh, commercial real estate 
portfolios in the US are lagging and the values are going down because interest rates are up so the demand isn't there. There's still un uncertainty around, you know, how does hybrid work and, and the changing in, in worker preferences play out over the next 10 years. Um, so there, there's still a lot going on. Then you, you throw in the fact that there's uh, a lot of debt coming coming due at the same time. Um, not all banks are in a, in a bad situation. It's going to be very dependent on the individual bank. And, and a lot of the focus you're going to see is going to be on smaller regional banks uh, over the next couple of months. Um, but not all small regional bank is made the same. So just keep that in mind. Um, do you have anything to add? Add there. No, not really. It's just interesting, you know, um, you know, to kind of compare the commercial real estate market with the, you know, um, you know, private real estate market, if you want to call it that, like, because home, home builders have been one of the best performing uh, industries uh, in the market over the past year, yeah. right? Um, and then it's just interesting that, you know, you have all this going on where there could be maybe some some hiccups in the the commercial real estate sector uh, for some time to come. So uh, I think just one of those things that we're going to have to wait and see how this plays out. Um, some people might be licking their chops and saying, Ooh, this is the, it's going to be the beginning of the next 08 where I'm going to be able to, you know, gobble up, you know, real estate at, at super cheap prices. And while I don't think it's, yeah, it's going to get that see. bad, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it's you know I don't I don't want to throw a bold prediction out. Um, you know, I I think there will be a bit of a gully in commercial real estate for a while because companies have to figure out uh, changing changing structure of the workforce and you know how much office exposure do you want if you're a multinational company with two thousand employees you know if half of them prefer to work from home and you can have cost savings there you know maybe that makes more sense so. Those trends are still playing out. They'll take continued years to play out because commercial um, you know, rents are longer contracts. Right, that's typically how those work. Um, my my last piece is kind of going back to the tech conversation we talked about earlier. Um, is uh, about the overweight on the Magnificent Seven, so to speak. And this comes from the BOFA Fund Manager Survey, which we we talk about every now and then. Um, all in on tech. Everyone is going. Going all in on U.S. tech, allocation of the sector has reached the highest since August 2020, according to Bank of America's latest loan manager survey, which also showed the most crowded trade by far was owning so-called Magnificent Seven. The hunger for everything AI is helping, as Joe writes, as our cost-cutting plans from some of the biggest names like Meta and Amazon announced in the latest earnings season. So we'll we'll throw a chart up here that that shows it's over uh, that that shows kind of like the overweight the Magnuson Seven, um, and it being a so to, so to speak crowded trade. Um, let's go back. Let's think back of that chart that you showed. Just because it's a crowded trade, does that mean it's a problem and we need to sell out of it? No, not at all. Right? Um, it's it's a crowded trade from uh, you know it's leading leading the market and people are overweight. Um, why are people overweight? People are overweight simply put because the earnings are strong and the growth outlooks are strong. And and that is as, as simple as you can you can say it. Right. Um, relative to other areas of the market, their their earnings are good. Growth outlooks are good. You got AI um, 
going on. Think about what we just talked about with commercial real estate, changing trends of what's going on in commercial real estate. Why is that? Because of the amazing te technological revolution workers have had over the past you know, five five years. I mean, you could stretch it out to 10 if you want to look at like specific types of remoting in technology, et cetera. Um, you know, Microsoft Teams, we're on that right now. Um, you know, just the, the changes have been pretty astronomical, which is why I think you have that overweight um, and, and why the Magnificent Seven has, has done so well. Um, that's not to say that a pullback is not possible, uh, if not probable at times. Some some profit taking, I think, can be expected um, in the same same way that we saw that to some degree last year, right, where we saw a big kind of dip in it or people were taking profits and reallocating and then it came back in and and that's where, uh, you know, that's more, it's going to be kind of month to month and, and, and in a short term kind of movements, but. Um, yeah. Anyway. And we've, you know, obviously we've seen, you know, there's been times where, you know, managers were more overweight to tech, such as 2011, 2012, looks like 2014 ish, 2016, um, you know, 2020, early 2021, um, and, you, you know, tech has been dominant for a past decade. And like you said, obviously, it wasn't without its pullbacks. Like in March of 2020, tech got hit yeah. pretty good for like a month. Um, but over the long term, this isn't by any means a, oh, my gosh, got to sell tech. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good chart. That's, uh, that's everything I had this week. So I think we can uh, move it along to the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for uh, your time today, Nick, and for everything you do for us. Uh, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, uh, bringing back in Taylor Ledbetter, uh, one of our wealth advisors here at Jessup Wealth Management. So uh, Taylor, this week, it looks like we're going to be discussing RSUs or uh, restricted stock units. So uh, I'll let you go ahead and take it away. Yeah, um, I feel like RSUs can be a pretty popular employee benefit package, um, but you don't really hear them talked about that much. So I thought it'd be good to kind of go over them and just how they work today. So typically companies use RSUs as an, in, an incentive to attract and retain employees. Um, and it's very appealing because when you're given an RSU from your employer, they're essentially just giving you stock in the company. Um, so if the stock price takes off, obviously you receive a much larger financial benefit. RSUs are also subject to a vesting schedule, which encourages employees to stay with the company long term. Um, I know I've talked a little bit about vesting schedules in the past. Um, basically what that means, it's just a length of time you have to stay with the company to technically own the stock that you're given. So I want to go through an example to make that a little more clear. So let's say you were granted 1500 RSU shares and maybe your company has a vesting schedule of about five years. This means that if you stay at your company for a year, 
you'll officially own 300 shares or 20% um, that would be vested every single year. And for the next four years, every year that you remain employed, you keep receiving 300 shares. Um, so once that vesting date is reached, you can hold on to those shares, you can sell them, you can do whatever you want with them. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is pretty common practice, uh, Taylor, whether the, you know, whether the vesting period is three years or five years, uh, it incentivizes you to stay on with the company longer um, because, you know, obviously, you know, that could be significant, you know, compensation. We're, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands or potentially even millions of dollars by, mm -hmm. you know, hanging on and working. And if you're a person that's in that phase of life where, you know, you're in that 55 to 65 range and you're thinking about retirement, but, you know, your employer is kind of dangling the RSUs in front of you over the next five, 10, 15 years saying, hey, this is the potential of how much you're going to be able to make um, if you hang on with us a little longer. It's uh, it's incentivizing, right? And mm -hmm. it's not just a dollar figure get being given to you. It's the the allure of it, I think, is the potential for, you know, these, you know, 1500 shares, you know, that are valued, let's say at, you know, $100,000 potentially turning into half a million dollars five years mm -hmm. down the road, right? Um, exactly. So it's a really good uh, piece of compensation. A lot of times what we see is that people that are employed at companies that have RSUs, you know, these people's salaries might be a little less, but they're, being compensated on the back end with these RSUs because they do have the potential to grow and be worth, you know, so much more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, not every company offers an RSU package. Um, so for a company to offer this, it's, it's very unique and something I think people should definitely take advantage of if you have that where you work. Yeah, 100%. So I think something that can be confusing with RSUs is how they are taxed. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, so when the RSUs are granted to you, you know, this is before you're vested, you're just awarded them. There are no tax consequences at the grant date because again, you technically do not own them. Right. And the, the grant date, so that's pretty much Taylor just saying, hey, here's your RSUs that you have the ability to obtain over the next three or five years, whatever that vesting schedule is. And as mm -hmm. you hit those year marks, you get a, a piece of that. Right. So that's what right. Taylor's talking about when she's when she's talking about the grant date. Mm hmm. Um, so once your shares do vest, let's use the example we were just talking about, you know, maybe your 300 shares are vesting. Um, on that vest date, the fair market value of those shares are considered taxable income. So what's really nice though, is that some companies, instead of you withholding taxes, um, from that fair market value, some companies offer the ability to withhold shares instead. So again, if you have 300 shares that are vested, let's say they're worth about 
$10 a share, um, you'll need to pay income tax on three grand. So let's assume you're in the 30% tax bracket. Your bill would be about $900, but if your company allows you to just pay taxes out of the shares, you would just withhold 90 shares, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And I, you know, if companies offer this option, Taylor, I'm always a strong advocate for doing that. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't have to worry about the tax consequences in the future. It's just, hey, you know, you withheld the amount of shares to pay the tax bill. So when your vesting date hits, anything there is you're just paying, you know, gains on, you know, or taxes on the gains of the stock, right? And especially mm -hmm. if you hold it for longer than than a year, it turns into that lower uh, long-term capital gains tax. Um, but I've seen situations, I'm sure you have as well, where companies do not offer the ability for you to pay the tax up front by withholding shares. And then, you know, you pay that on the back end, um, which mm -hmm. can be pretty significant in retirement if you want to sell a big a big chunk of, of stock especially if you're 65 and older and you're on Medicare um, you can make under a certain dollar threshold in retirement in the form of income before your Medicare premiums start to go up so that's one thing uh, that can be tricky for people but yeah highly recommend at least in my opinion that if if your company offers that ability to withhold shares to pay the tax that it's usually a, a positive thing. Yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, the shares were given to you. It's not like right. you paid for them. So right. paying the tax by reducing the share amount, like like you said, in my opinion, you're not really losing anything. Right, right. So, um, yeah, well, that was uh, that was great, Taylor. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your morning to uh, talk about RSUs. Um, I think that this is something that is big getting to be more and more popular, uh, at least from what we've seen with with employers. So um, yeah, it's it's a great form of compensation. And I know it's a, another acronym in the finance industry that people you know might need to learn, but um, thanks for taking time today to, to go through that and explain it. Yeah, of course. Um, before we end off, just want to let listeners know uh, if you want to create your own podcast, you can use the promo code Jessup Wealth to get your first month of Blueberry podcast hosting for free. To choose the ideal plan for you, use the hosting estimator on their website. Again, you can receive your first month free with promo code Jessup Wealth, all lowercase, no spaces. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening to episode number 239 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We will be back with you next week for episode number 240. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on the social media sites 
insights, also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.